Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Muni volatility and rates are up. However, unlike the spring of 2020, what the broader rates market and by proxy munis are contending with is no longer an unknown health-related crisis, but more of a detoxification from years of accommodative fiscal policy. Granted, the pandemic is far from over, but risks to the municipal market in the near term are more focused on rates than a virus. One of the impacts of this detoxification, aside from higher rates, are wider credit spreads. We see this more acutely on the corporate side and the early signs of this on the municipal side. As credit begins to be repriced back into the municipal market, we are pleased to be joined by one of the foremost experts of credit in our industry. To many, he and his firm are the gold standards when it comes to high-yield municipal bonds. We're honored to be joined by John Miller from Nuveen on this week's Masters of the Universe podcast. And as always, I'm also joined by Amanda Albright from our Bloomberg News Division. So, John, I'm going to be honest, and I know I sort of mentioned this. I had my doubts this would work out with you coming on the podcast, but I am happy to be pleasantly surprised. And many thanks to Amanda for helping to make this happen. She fastidiously kept on top of trying to reschedule this. So thank you, Amanda. Um, I know that you've talked to Amanda and Danielle uh, a bunch in the past, but this is the first time you and I have officially spoken. So, you know, just on a personal level, like, you know, how has this pandemic been for you? You know, family, okay, everyone's safe, healthy, you know, good things like that. Yeah, well, th- thanks so much for having me on the podcast, and uh, and yes, thanks for asking. The uh, it's been uh, a, a surprising uh, two years. We've uh, we've been uh, at home, work from home until just recently, uh, where uh, where our the majority of our our trading desk is is back in person at least three days a week or so, and uh, so that's a nice nice refreshing. But uh, fortunately, my uh, my family's been uh, been healthy and uh, the whole this whole time, so we're uh, uh, we're doing okay and, and coming out of a, uh, a, a pandemic time period. I think. I mean, is it is it your thought we're sort of on the back end of all of this? I mean, it's certainly my hope, right? You know, yeah, sort I, of mean, I, I believe so. And of course, um, no, I have no uh, special medical expertise, but from a, from a political standpoint and uh, just the way, the way in which uh, governments are responding in the United States, especially, is uh, there, there will still most likely be variants and, and they seem to be becoming more contagious yet less dangerous for most yeah. people. Uh, and, uh, and I think most people are ready to be done with the, uh, restrictions and lockdowns and even, even masking going away and most people are vaccinated. So, uh, so yeah, I think, I think it's a normalization, even though we're, we're, we've been in a, in a lull in discussing, um, new variants in, in part because of the uh, terrible events of, uh, of the Russia in, uh, invading Ukraine, but maybe has pushed, pushed variants back off the headlines. I know they still exist. I know they're still circulating, but I really think we're adjusting to the new, adjusting to the new reality, learning to live with it, staying open. Uh, that's kind of the way I view things. Yeah. It's, I'm sure you get asked to look in a crystal ball constantly, you know, by, by the folks over at Bloomberg News, by, you know, investors just, you know, sort of ask you to pontificate. And it's funny, I went back and reread the interview you did. Um, I think it's probably the summer of 2020. And you seem sort of optimistic that it was going to be more short lived. And I think I was probably in that same camp. I was like, there's no way we're going to be talking about COVID two years from now. But here we are. And you're, you're right. We're talking about it to a lesser degree because we have other sort of geopolitical issues that are sort of taking the forefront right now. But regardless, both of them are causing volatility in our market. So, you know, with that sort of segue, what is this? so far 2022 been like for you from an investment standpoint, you know, from a market standpoint? Well, it, the first quarter of 2022 has been difficult from an investment standpoint. Uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, the difficulty has to do with interest rates and not, and, and in fact, not just the overall level of inflation, but the Federal Reserve's coming response to the level of inflation, which has changed around year end. 
in, in, in 2021, we ha already had this high inflation rate last year, uh, but the Fed was more focused on other things. They were more in the belief of a, of a, of a temporary or transitory inflation rate. They're focused on the job market. And, and that has had a very significant shift where uh, they feel the job market is, is fine, it's healthy, it's very strong. And the, and the prioritization now is inflation and raising interest rates to get that inflation rate down. Yeah. So that's, that's made for a, uh, a challenging investment environment uh, for, for munis. Now, munis have arguably, munis ended the year 2021 relatively rich. And, uh, and, and so it has, so munis have underperformed treasuries this year, uh, in part giving back some of that richness. Now we're looking relatively cheap, <laughs> uh, but it's been, it's been a persistent weakness. Uh, it's been a persistent weakness in munis where virtually every day, except perhaps two or three days of the entire quarter so far, have been negative for both flows and uh, mark-to-market trends in yeah. uh in in uni bonds so yes. um so that's that it's it's not the frantic um it's not the frantic feeling of uh, of the market just dropping really dramatically the way it did in march of, of 2020 uh but it's a continued slow bleed has been more yeah. the experience in the first quarter i mean is that harder to deal with from an investor standpoint when you're consistently answering the question of why am i why am i getting negative returns day after day after day um, you know, because I, I almost feel like you can excuse a sharp drop, um, especially when we have a nice pop reversal when the Fed gets involved. But, you know, just I guess this sort of leads a lot of investors, I would imagine, to sort of say, how many knives am I comfortable trying to catch here? Right. I think that I think that's been a, a, a challenging um, argument in that the the consistency of the the day to day weakness, even if it's only two basis points here, three basis points there, but, but very consistent. And e even if outflows are not, are not dramatic the way they were in March of 2020, but outflows have been consistent and, that, and, and the two things might be interrelated. So uh, when are we reaching the point of stabilization it, is, is, a key, is a key question. And, a, and that's, been, um, uh, that's been a challenge. It's been a challenge. Okay. Um, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about high yield, which I know we're going to spend a lot of the conversation on. Um, but what do you make of the performance of high yield so far this year? It's down, you know, over five percent. But I think one of the big talking points that portfolio managers have, you know, given is just that high yield in a rising rate environment um, can provide some protection. So I'm curious, like, when we'll start to see that kick in, um, and just kind of like your, I know the, the outlook, like you're saying, is, is hard to predict, but what's kind of your outlook for high yield beauties? Yeah, I, so I still believe that that, that that is true in the big picture and in the long term. And that, that being that uh, because growth is very strong, the job market is tight, uh, people are earning more money, uh, revenues are very robust at the state and local government sector and at the federal level. Mm -hmm. uh, that would tend to support the fundamentals of high yield and the additional income plus the potential for spreads to narrow would create cushion, uh, cushion in a rising rate environment. And I still think that's true in the big picture. That might not be true for a short time period. So here we're most of the way through the first quarter. And at least according to some of the key data that we look at, the, the performance of, of the Barclays main index as of the 15th of March was down about 5.1%, whereas the Barclays high yield muni index down about 5.2%. So mm -hmm. really, really close, uh, almost identical performance that could be explained more from just small differential in duration that versus the differential in spread. And, and spreads we're seeing as virtually unchanged year to date. So high yield hasn't proven itself to be resistant to the rising rate environment in the first quarter, but, uh, but still over longer time periods, I think that it does present uh, opportunity and, and value to provide that cushion longer term. 
I mean, I'm, I'm on board with that thinking, right? I mean, and, and the way I look at it, it's obviously different than you. I'm not, I don't have any skin in the game per se that I'm managing money, but just sort of like from an outsider's perspective, right? We went through an, a, a pandemic that we're still contending with and big, really bad credits, right? They didn't get junk status. So if a pandemic couldn't get us there, is there anything in your mind that could like really roll down the pike that the Fed wouldn't be willing to respond to, seeing as that we saw sort of their willingness to step into the markets? Yeah, well, that's a that uh, that's a tricky question. I I I agree with the premise, though. I mean, the premise being, munis are predominantly uh, essential services. Uh, in a in a pandemic time period, it's interesting because that includes a lot of what we would call frontline workers in healthcare systems. Uh, of course, at you know K through 12 education is 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 critical. Uh, transportation systems are critical, and all those services that general obligation uh, governments provide are are critical, especially in a in a pandemic. And um, the lockdowns were, of course, government initiated and implemented, but then by the same token, the government also came in to provide that that economic bridge to, yeah. to help make up for the, for the revenue losses and, and economic downturn. So in the end, I think that the asset class showed its resilience, both from the importance of, of what municipalities provide and, and municipal services, municipal yeah. revenue type, type projects, what the, what the services are that they provide and the importance of them and, uh, and the, the, government support as well as fed support of course fed support in part was municipal but in part was uh all um financial markets sure it was nice we were included though (laughs) there were some doubts there but they came through so yay from unis that's right yeah um john i mean i guess i guess within it kind of a doom and gloom um a mood in, in unis lately but where are you, where are you excited? Where are you finding opportunities? Like what still looks like a, a good buy at this point, especially within high yield? Oh, sure. Yeah. The, and I, I would say, um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's, it's doom and gloom. And, and in fact, the one, one point that I would make just in terms of, in terms of general market uh, in, in fixed income and also longer dated bonds it's uh the most difficult periods are are frequently right before the first hike of a new hiking cycle uh the the most the most negative returns for say 10 year maturities on out to 30 year maturities the most negative is is before the fed begins to hike once the fed does start to hike uh that has tended to coincide with periods of more of more stabilization and more yield curve flattening so short uh short rates may go up but long rates might go up a lot less as inflation expectations start to start to come down, given the premise, okay, well, the Fed is turning its attention to uh, draining liquidity and, and raising rates and therefore uh, pushing inflation lower. Uh, so the, um, the, the issue driving negativity in munis, again, I think is the uh, it's the maturity date of the bonds, the duration, interest rate sensitivity of the bonds, as opposed to credit. Mm-hmm. Um, cre- certain certain credits have done relatively well. So uh, when we when we break out sectors and states, we actually see Puerto Rico as the outperformer for the first quarter, uh, down but down about a percent less than everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is uh, some of that is the geo which has now been exchanged and is just starting to, to trade. And I, and I think that's um, uh, that after some, after some indigestion or, or, or moving around uh, where, where the bonds would be potentially held longer term, there could be some, some spread narrowing there with the GO because Puerto Rico's economic statistics are strengthening and the oversight board is still in place for four years. Um, Another, another area that is performed, generally speaking, in line with the market, but I think has uh, 
overall fundamental strength are, are still uh, land secured bonds in the three areas where there's been the most issuance and the most home building activity has been Florida, uh, Texas, and Colorado. And uh, all, all of those areas continue to have uh, very strong demand for housing. The demand is uh, such that, uh, that new homes are sold almost as, uh, almost as soon as they're uh, completed in terms of uh, being built. Yeah. And property tax collections are, are very strong. Now, those, those have widened out a little bit in, in spread, uh, yet we're not seeing any credit deterioration there. So, uh, so therefore, the spread widening could just be liquidity management. Interesting. I, I want to stop you at um, the the dirt bond question, um, which some people take issue with that term, but I'll just use it. Um, so what does that mean for, for your team? Are you guys going on site visits? Are you scoping out Colorado? I mean, you know, what is what does that look like for your team in terms of digging into those credits? Well, we have been dedicated from a research standpoint on a bottoms up basis, looking at a, a project by project uh, in this sector for many years and we really ramped up our efforts in uh, uh in the in the early 2000s and uh, and post 2008 the sector was trading at distress levels for both good projects and and more um esoteric projects so regardless it was all at distress levels and it's come it's come back in a in a meaningful way and we are we really didn't do much traveling for the last uh, for the last two years, but we could still rely on uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of data that is uh, that is available through through Bloomberg and other sources. But uh, but now we are starting to travel again from um, uh, in terms of site visits, and um, and we um, have a lot of holdings that we can see on, on a surveillance basis and then new issues that frequently come right adjacent or, or right near where uh, our existing holdings are. So we can t- kill two birds with one stone in that way. Got it. And does the work from home kind of boon, is that just another um, boost for, for that type of debt? Or does that, it sounds like you've been investing in them for a while, so. Oh, we have. I mean, I, I do think that, um, I do think that work from home has uh, accentuated some of the growth, particularly in in those three states. Um, because, uh, well, if you look at even uh, Wall Street firms or tech companies from California, have both been moving to Florida, um, and and obviously people uh, along with or or people who still work in um, uh, still work in New York, say, might work from Florida, uh, even if their even if their firm is, is headquartered in New York. Uh, so we're seeing um, uh, we're seeing that as an increasing trend. Uh, moves from moves from California to Texas are are still fairly robust, and um, and Denver has been booming for the Denver general Denver area has been booming for uh, for a decade. So I think um, uh, I think people are 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 general I mean people are going back to work and people are going back to the office in general gradually their uh, the participation rate in the labor force had a had a major leg down of course in the last uh, in, in the last 2 years but is clawing its way gradually back up is almost back to where it started about 63% uh, pre-pandemic, we're almost back there uh, from a broad-based labor market statistic, and um, it, even even so, just that flexibility, that ability to do some some of this work remote, remotely, is uh, is I think still going to be with us for a long time, and um, and relocations to states with no income tax, with warmer weather, uh, that was already happening. And I, and I think perhaps uh, some of these pandemic implications has uh, accelerated that trend. Yeah. I was just out in Denver. I couldn't believe the amount of construction that's going on sort of as you head out to the mountains toward Vail. I mean, just the amount of cranes 
sort of in the distance and, and the new housing going up. It's really tremendous. And I just like, I'm from Philadelphia and just not seeing the sort of same amount of build out here. So it just really does speak to sort of the demand in that market, you know, just for like more laid back lifestyle, I guess, being outdoors more often, but um, not Northeast weather or Chicago <laughs> weather for sure. Uh, so I, I do want to ask you a question about the sort of work from home though. Right. So obviously like, I think it's going to be here for a while. The genie's sort of out of the bottle on that, but you know, people are getting back to work, but it doesn't seem like people are getting back to the MTA or, or public transit in mass. Um, do you think like that's going to be a new normal we adjust to going forward? You know, everybody sort of looks at these MTA turnstiles and say, well, we're only, you know, 60 percent, you know, versus 2019. And, you know, I've just sort of look at it that we may never get back to that 2019 level. And that might be OK. You know, we just have to adjust for that in our thinking. Um, yeah, I um, I agree there. People are coming back to work, but it is a slow and gradual process, and it's not necessarily five days a week, and it isn't necessarily going to be five days a week. Mm -hmm. I've noticed uh, uh, we're, uh, my particular trading desk is, is back to work just its second week back. Uh, we're, we're generally doing about three days a week so far um, in, in the office, two, days, two additional days a, a, a week at home. And I've noticed, um, you know, my train is getting more and more crowded uh, and, um, and they don't run quite as frequently as they used to. So I'm sure that the I'm sure that the overall total ridership is still down, but um, but it is gradually on an upward uh, on an upward trajectory. Yeah. And um, uh, you might we might we might see a leveling off that's uh, that's still a bit below 2019. Uh, even, but I, I do think I do think those numbers are still climbing, but um, uh, but very very gradual. And it may, maybe gas prices will force people back into public transit as well if, if they stay at these levels. Um, and you know, who knows? Yeah, and and, and the, more and more just traffic. The, yeah. Just the just the the congestion in a private car plus uh, you know plus the price of 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 everything from gas to parking is. Uh, uh, maybe going to push push people back, and and just the feeling, uh, um, the feeling that you're safe. The, the I think safety is uh, maybe an impediment that that hopefully goes uh, uh, gets better and better. Is safety either either contagion or safety from the perspective of uh, crime? Yeah. So the, the, those Absolutely. have been some, some issues, but uh, but hopefully getting better on the margin. So, so John, I did want to ask um, your high yield fund, which for people who don't know, which I think everyone listening will probably know this, it's $22 billion. Um, so last fall, you closed the fund to new investors. Um, Invesco did the same thing with its high yield muni fund. Um, you know, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think the thinking at the time may have been that, you know, there was so much money coming into high yield munis last year and, you know, maybe not enough investment opportunities. Where do you kind of stand on reopening the fund? Are you seeing, you know, it, it sounds like you're seeing investment opportunities in Puerto Rico and with these land secured deals. I guess maybe if you can talk a little bit about your thoughts on reopening the fund to new money. Yeah, I think that um, it's a relatively short time horizon that we have been closed. I mean, that's a uh, the fourth quarter of last year uh, and first quarter of this year. Um, I think that uh, we want, we, we have, we are soft closed. So the fund is available to existing shareholders and, and certain, uh, certain platforms. What about the, certain podcasters? Uh, are they, are they available to join? <laughs> we could, we could talk after the, after the show. <laughs> um, the, uh, so our, our thought process is we can still, well, first of all, priority to take care of existing shareholders and again existing shareholders can make can make adjustments as as they see fit the add, adding or subtracting hopefully they don't go com, you know completely out and uh, we'll have a placeholder to go back in the uh, we are seeing more investment opportunities and those investment opportunities are cheaper they're both cheaper on an absolute basis cuffing it just generally speaking, at least 100 basis points cheaper, uh, and on a relative basis, just in comparison to treasuries, as, as you know, the municipal to treasury ratio is up about 20 percentage points 
from you know roughly high 70s to now high 90s in the 30-year part of the yield curve in, in terms of muni to treasury ratio. Um, so yes, the, the investment opportunity set is good. The, um, we have, you know, overall, um, certainly when the market was doing well, this fund can continue to grow. We just don't want the, the pace of the growth to outstrip the opportunity set and, uh, and we want to make sure that the investment strategy or the performance is never driven uh, by uh, pace of inflows and outflows. So that, that, that's, the key. that's the key sort of to the philosophy of it. Having said that, we do want to be more dynamic about opening and closing big picture going forward. And, um, and it's under, uh, under analysis. It's not, just a, it's not just a portfolio manager saying, yeah, let's go ahead and open it. It's really a, a broader, uh, a broader you know, product uh, level uh, analysis at the, at the company as a whole. So numerous different uh, people involved taking a look at it. So I would say we're, we're, we're always taking a look at it, whether we should be open or closed and how the growth is going and how the opportunity sets are going. So, um, so we'll you know, see, if, see if there might be an opportunity to reopen at some point. In, in your mind, is the market, like the high yield market specifically, is, is it shrinking at all? Just because we've had so many refundings with tobacco bonds and, you know, like those aren't, you know, new ones aren't really coming down the pipeline. And, and now that we have some sort of clarity with, with Puerto Rico, you know, some of that might exit the index. So do you, do you think there'll be enough coming new project wise to replace the bucket that, you know, will be left empty by those? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Not, uh, I will say there's, there's a lot of um, ups and downs in terms of, uh, in terms of the supply dynamics, some of which you touched on. Uh, so we, we talked about the dirt sector and, and because, of the, because of the housing market booming in certain areas, there's a fairly steady flow of new issue supply in, uh, uh, in land secured. Yeah. There's, some, there's a fairly, I would say, fairly robust supply of bonds in the charter school area. Um, industrial development is highly, highly case specific. We have not seen a lot of, uh, industrial development revenue bonds recently. Uh, we have not seen a lot of hospital bond high yield new issues recently. Um, the, uh, you mentioned tobacco refundings. I mean, that does take some supply away. It puts some new supply in the market. Uh, but net net it, it reduces the total amount of outstanding in the non-rated and below investment grade area, it tends to increase the amount outstanding in the uh, triple B and single A rated area within tobacco. Um, So the uh, Puerto Rico is interesting because not all indices and not all investors uh, can invest in defaulted bonds. So as you've, as you've seen the restructuring of COFINA went from defaulted to current pay and then the current pay quote unquote new COFINA is the really the largest bond in high yield period and uh and so uh, depending on where you stand on buying defaulted bonds that could have been viewed as a big addition to supply so similarly i would say similarly with the go and then in the future hopefully later this year prepa mm-hmm. prep uh, the go just went from defaulted to current pay and and there's some trading going on as those as those bonds get into perhaps get into the hands of mutual funds and get into the hands of people who want to own them for the yield on the more longer term. So that could be considered an addition to supply, even though it's an exchange. Um, PREPA is a, is a very big one, which could also be considered an addition to supply if it gets restructured effectively and exchanged into new current pay bonds, then there'll be another big new current pay high yield bond uh, in the market later this year. So okay. Um, a lot of a, a lot of different moving parts to 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 answer that question. Yeah, it sounds like enough to keep you guys busy. Oh, for, de- most definitely. Yeah. I mean, just a quick uh, Puerto Rico follow up. I mean, do you think that this um, them coming out of bankruptcy? I mean, will we start to see like will the hedge funds leave too? Like, what what do you think that means for hedge funds participation in unis? Just curious. Um, I think that. 
for at least certain types of hedge funds. Of course, there's a plethora of different strategies out there. When it comes to a, a opportunistic distressed type of uh, uh, strategy, I would say munis arguably are going to become less exciting to that type of strategy because there isn't that much distress. I mean, there's uh, stati- statistics that we look at show that uh, of new defaulting bonds, so Puerto Rico would not be in the new defaulting bond category, but for newly, newly defaulting bonds, almost half of them are in life care, so that translates mostly into nursing homes and CCRCs, but that's relatively small. And one of the p- appealing things about Puerto Rico to a hedge fund um, would be there's some size there, so some multi-billion dollar issues there. Um, it almost could be comparable to, say, compare and contrast with emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if Russia defaults, I would imagine emerging market distress type players could leave Puerto Rico and go into some of the, some of the aftermath of, of what happens there, for, just as one example. So I, I think the muni market might become too strong from a credit standpoint and not yielding enough uh, for certain types of hedge fund strategies. Now there are there are now there are other strategies that 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 uh, that have maybe a um, a leverage play or a or a play on the muni to treasury ratio or more liquid uh, more liquid bonds that don't have to have ten twelve percent rate of return potential mm-hmm. um, that that could would still find munis very appealing. Got it. Okay. I want to shift gears a little. Um, maybe ask a little. I mean, I'm I'm kind of learning. Um, in covering munis that just liquidity from dealers is like a perennial concern. Um, I was looking at the MSRB stat book, which is a very fun document. And, you know, it shows that the number of dealers has continued to decline. What do you make of liquidity from dealers? Is, is there anything that could, you know, make them more active? Is it an issue for you or is it just something that you've kind of come to terms with? Um, Yes, it's an issue, and yes, we are trying to come to terms with it. Uh, if you look at um, if you look at the total size and composition of the uh, of the mutual fund holdings of munis, uh, at the end of 2021, for the first time, muni mutual fund holdings topped one trillion dollars, and um, all the while, and that's been a, a that's been a robust growth rate for for twenty years. All the while, dealer inventories have continued to go down. So you have mutual fund assets going up to eclipsing a trillion, not even including ETFs, which are growing. ETFs are actually growing faster than mutual funds, albeit off of a smaller base. Uh, so, but a, a couple hundred billion there in ETFs now, plus a trillion in mutual funds. And dealer inventories are, um, I might get this figure a little off, but it, it could be in the neighborhood of somewhere between 20 and 30 billion. Yeah. Uh, so that is arguably, that's somewhat imbalanced when you, you frequently see, you normally see if mu- major mutual funds are, are losing money to outflows pretty much everybody's going to be in the same boat. Uh, there, there are, I don't recall too many markets where there's just an outlier over here losing money and then outliers over there taking in money. It's really has tended to shift all at once across the entire industry. So that, create, that creates, uh, there's, dealers are simply not incentivized to step into that gap that gets created. They're not incentivized to do so. So I think of, I think of dealers to some degree as, um, as they they're going to be reflective of the demand on the other side, as opposed to as opposed to proprietary positions. There's no way they're going to cover the gap with taking on their own proprietary positions. However, they can be very helpful in um, pitching the merits and the cheapness. Uh, of the asset class to other buyers, and and there are there are other buyers. There, 
uh, that might not always be moving in the same direction. So for, foreign buyers have been growing in a robust fashion. Uh, from our experience, foreign this is more relates more to taxable munis, but in our experience, foreign buyers are still adding. Um, they're more institutional in nature. Um, I would say institutional is adding while retail is selling. Uh, on, the, on the margin, we are at least hearing about insurance companies and banks adding to their municipal portfolios now that we're relatively cheaper and foreign buyers adding to their municipal portfolios for the same reason, even while retail is selling. And that, again, that's, that's just reflected in, a, in dealers acting more as a pass-through of the demand that they find as opposed to dealers themselves being the demand by taking proprietary positions. Because that's, while they might take a few proprietary positions here and there, it's not going to be enough to absorb, you know, 20 billion of outflows in one quarter. Does the term riskless cross just sort of drive you crazy at this point? I mean, because <laughs> I mean, that's, it's basically like what's been going on for the last like year or so, right? I mean, the majority of business, but you know, to your point, no doubt there's less dealers around, but on top of that, the dealers that are around are committing less balance sheet when it comes to munis. I, do you see that pendulum ever swinging the other way as interest rates increase? Um, or are we just sort of at this level where munis are just sort of the, you know, the forgotten about asset class that get a little bit of balance sheet? Yeah, I, the, um, well, I think that some of it is maybe the level of rates, as you suggest, which is if the level of rates are not high enough, then that doesn't create enough of an incentive for a dealer to stick their neck out there and, and take on a bunch of risk. The other is uh, is more perhaps more secular in terms of the risk return profile of of the institution itself, the broker dealer institution, and the rate of return hurdles that they have, and then the regulatory uh, risk based capital requirements that they have, and so forth. It seems to be a systematic disincentive to uh, getting really long a lot of risk and then hoping that it pans out because the reward for making a good trade is not as high as the pain of, uh, of losing money on such a position. At least that's what I you know, continue, continue to hear from, from dealers. Now, on, on the flip side, that, that institutional side, and if you, look at, if you look at ETFs kind of as a quasi-institution or institutional money, in, in some cases flowing into ETFs because it's so, uh, it's just sort of buying into quote unquote the market as opposed to, uh, as opposed to say retail seeking yield and a long-term investment. Uh, ETFs are more, more uh, rapidly traded and that could potentially help and that could potentially help with liquidity and, and with uh, price discovery so that we're not lagging either down or up uh, ETFs are, are faster moving, and, uh, and, and the, basket, the basket process could, um, uh, in some cases, uh, help with liquidity. I just spoke at a conference um, out in San Diego, and the panel I was helping moderate was on municipal ETFs. And I, I feel like I knew about municipal ETFs going in, but I came away with a ton more questions and, and almost an appreciation for how large this is going to be over the next year or so as growth really sort of gets going in muni ETF space. And so like, I guess my question, you, know, you probably can answer this more so than I can, why aren't more sort of SMA shops just diving into, let's say, Mob or VTAB to get exposure to the market rather than sort of sit around in cash and, and leg into opportunities? Like, isn't that just seem like at five basis points, just sort of like an easy way to sort of quickly, like you said, get invested? Uh, yes, I, I think that uh, it's a great point, and I think that it'll happen more over time. I'm not sure if it's perfectly positioned for SMAs per se, because SMAs, one of the advantages of SMAs is that the clients of the SMAs like to have individual municipal bond names with individual maturity dates. Yeah. And coupons and, uh, and, and, and call features in their, yeah. in their brokerage accounts. So the yeah. ETFs are kind of like a fund that might not be a perfect fit for an SMA. Maybe, maybe but, I should rephrase. So I meant like 
the cash comes into the account, right? Day one, let's say the client gives you $500,000, you buy a mub, then you sort of peel off little bits and pieces to buy those cash bonds for the accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I, and I think, I think more of that is going to go on over time, even with, even with funds buying ETFs. Oh, and interesting. Our, some of our um, mutual funds have been uh, positioning in ETFs to, uh, to do you know, some of what you're saying. A quick, uh, a quick investment in, say, the market yeah. and uh, for at least a, a, you know, a portion of, of cash and um, can, then can, can sort out some of the individual pieces inside the ETFs uh, in subsequent trading days. It's a, it's, a, it's a great time of change for our industry in that sense that there's so many new products coming down the pike and there's explosive growth when you look at you know how much fund flows have increased on muni ETFs compared to other asset classes. I mean, it's really been on a percentage basis, really, really impressive. Um, you know, I agree. Just real quick before I forget, Amanda sort of used the term doom and gloom for, for this year so far. And in some ways, like I would say the tone's been pretty negative, but I, I think there's a lot of silver linings. But I guess the one question I had was, have you have any lessons really been learned from 2020 as far as like portfolio management in the sense that we saw a lot of cash being raised and I wasn't sure if that was really a case of being overly cautious because of what happened in the beginning of the pandemic or legitimately people just yanking out funds and I just I don't know sort of like how to sort of read that outflow cycle I think that the for speaking for mutual funds in particular uh, I think that mutual funds were better prepared for 2022 outflows uh, than they have been in the past and better prepared than March of 2020. So, uh, and, and I, I know one statistic specifically for high yield, I don't have this for the entire market, but, but for the high yield market, the high yield peer group went into 2022 it's approximately 100 billion in size if you look at the Lipper peer group mm. and had about over 6 billion in cash okay. going into the year, wow. which is, uh, so a, a 6% cash position on average is fairly high for, yeah. for this asset class. Because of course you're, with, with short-term interest rates then being at zero, you are sacrificing a decent amount of yield to have that bolstering of cash and uh, even when the market started to soften, you didn't see that much selling. And even, even to this day, in my opinion, you haven't seen that much selling coming out of open-end mutual funds. Um, that, now, the high-yield fund flow is negative $4 billion, but of course, there's supply of high-yield bonds too. So you can't say that all those, all those negative $4 billion in fund flows have been funded with cash because people are still buying. Uh, buying new issues and so forth. So, yeah. um, but, uh, but I would say that mutual funds have not been, you know, pushing down the market with a heavy selling. There's been, uh, you know, again, ETFs have been, have been active in both directions yeah. and dealers themselves, I think, have been paring down risk all year long so far. And, um, uh, and so I think there's been some decent, some decent preparation. Um, and, uh, and I, I think there are, there are silver linings as well. I mean, people were, um, say take 2021 in a, in a nutshell, people were happy with the credit performance. I think overall happy with municipal bond performance in 2021, Mm -hmm. but the big complaint was, well, you know, yields should be higher. And now, and now we have almost exactly 100 basis points higher yield in the first quarter. And now it's, well, you know, now we're worried about inflation, even yeah. though inflation was already th- the highest inflation prints that we had were March, April, and May of 2021. Yeah. So inf- inflation, I think, even though we're not allowed to use transitory anymore, uh, inflation should be, even, even under the Fed's own forecast, mm-hmm. inflation should be down to around 4% by the end of this year and around 2% by the end of next year. Um, so, that seems transitory to me. <laughs> I, I, At I least it's addressable, right? <laughs> people took transitory to mean maybe next week or next month. <laughs> and 
and it needs to be at a, you know, a little bit of a longer time period, but, uh, but I don't think we're going to be staying at these, at these very elevated levels of inflation. I think what the oddest thing about this year has been to me is that people love the market at ratios of 70, 75%, but then they just sort of like sat on their hands when we hit mid nineties. And it was just like very confounding. It's like, you kept telling me how much you loved where ratios were back in the fall. Like, what, what are you, what are you guys doing? So that's just like, but I, I think that's just sort of our market, right? We, we, we change sort of our, our love affair with things very, very quickly as compared to other asset classes. We're a very fickle bunch, as you may know. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, I, and I, I actually think there is money on the sidelines, but no one, no one wants to catch that proverbial falling knife. And, and if the market exhibits some stability post-Fed, I mean, we have this, this week, we have post-Fed, we have post um, Puerto Rico exchange, and um, every every once in a while, hopefully, there's some some glimmer some glimmer of of, of compromise in the between Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. Um, there is, I think, there's money that w- could easily be dedicated to this asset class that is waiting for a hint of of stability. Yeah. Now, now that as you point out, levels. Uh, ratios are much better. Credit trends are strong, and spreads are either unchanged or a bit wider. On a stability basis, all I have to do is roll out the slide you put together on historical default rates. Right? Nothing screams stability like something that statistically never defaults. Right? I mean, that's the definition of quality. But I, I guess, and the, people are focused on the near term. I guess that's right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I, I, it's timing. It's a people are are so worried about timing. Yes. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it's it's time invested overwhelms timing. It's about time, not timing. But yes. but people always want to time it uh, to sort of time it well, even though timing interest rates and timing municipal bond investing is incredibly difficult. But um, but people still want to come in at the right time. Um, I have more of like a, I guess, and maybe kind of as a question as we kind of like wrap up the conversation, but I think I might ask you a version of this question every time we talk, John, but I'm curious, like you mentioned just, you know, mutual funds having one trillion um, in assets, like, you know, your firm is one of the big players in the market, and I imagine that comes with a lot of pressure, you know, whatever your fund is dealing with affects the entire whether it's high yield or it can infect the broader market. I'm curious, like, how you deal with that pressure of being someone who is closely watched by your peers and just someone who, you know, whatever your fund is dealing with, um, it, there's a ripple effect. Like, how do you personally deal with, like, that kind of pressure? Well, it can be difficult sometimes. Um, you know, I, I think one way is to... Um, uh, is to focus on the long term, um, to to focus on the fundamentals. To uh, you know, we have a we have a really good team, and uh, I think I think we're known for um, selection, mm-hmm. and uh, and we and we try and be you know very good about that. Um, we we try to do we try and do some hedging around the margins, but. Um, but munis, on a large scale, certainly, uh, munis are impossible to perfectly hedge. You know, it's it's difficult enough to to hedge your uh, your your Fed risk or your your interest rate risk, your duration risk. Um, we can be you know somewhat effective, sort of around the margins, but there's there's no way to hedge MMD on a large. Mm-hmm scale or hedge the, the Fed's shift on a large scale or that muni to treasury ratio. So uh, we kind of have to ride out, we kind of have to ride out some of the, some of the interest rate volatility that's been buffeting the market recently. But if we're, if we're um, delivering what our, our shareholders expect, and that's um, consistent yield and good selection in bond selection. And, uh, and that is, uh, you know, an important part of, of uh, kind of focusing on the long term and 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 getting through some of those uh, some of those pressures that you that you mentioned. So I don't know if you know we we have um, an anonymous chat that I run through BI 
and it's about 600, 700 folks in the industry. And when they found out we were having you on, I was like bombarded with questions, right? So if we were doing this live on the radio, the switch word would be lighting up. So I told them that I would take like some of the questions I thought were most interesting. Like I, 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 you can tell me offline what your favorite pizza place in Chicago is. We don't need to ask you that now, <laughs> but um, I do have one question that I thought was interesting and I want to get your take on it. So they wanted to know how you view evaluations. Um, should we be using trade prints, recent deal pricings or historical spreads? Um, you know, what's your, what's your take on sort of like how the, the magic has worked as far as coming up with pricing in the high yield space, or is there a better way that we as an industry should be moving towards? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. I think it's, it's a process that is, that is evolving. I, I do think that, um, the, the services, uh, are very uh, sincere in making a really good effort to to do to do the best they can in a in a highly fragmented market negotiated over the counter. Most bonds don't trade not only every day but but for long periods of time. Mo- most bonds are not actually trading. So um, I I do think new issue pricings per per sector per state so forth. New issue pricings are a uh, very important input. Uh, I think that historical spreads are very, very important input. You can break it down by sector, by state, yeah. by rating category, um, uh, by co- coupon. Coupon can create its own spread, of course, um, AMT, non-AMT. So, I mean, I, I think we have, as, as an industry, in this, this conversation or a conversation that, that we could have with, uh, with people trying to do pricing, um, we're, you know, we're looking at the right factors because we're looking at how a, a trader or a portfolio manager would negotiate a price on a, on a particular bond. So the, the problem, I think, is the overwhelming amount of work to, to really um, do that on every single QCIP. I mean, there might, be, there might be in the neighborhood of over 2 million QCIPs out there. And they and most of them are not going to be trading in a given day. Yeah. Maybe ninety nine percent of them won't trade in a given day. But you still have to reprice them at least a bit every night. So um, it's uh, it, it, it's the it's the amount of uh, it's the amount of work versus uh, that you would have to get done every single day in a fragmented market. But but I think the the group traders, portfolio managers, pricing service people. Um, are are looking at at relevant factors that you just ticked off. I mean the 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 new issue the new issue pricing, the historical spread levels, and then the, of course the secondary market trades that do go on um, are all very relevant. I, I think price discovery is just so difficult for a lot of folks on the periphery, right? Who who aren't in the weeds as often and try and sort of play in high yield as an offshoot, and it's just you know they can't get a beat, especially since like there is concentration risk within. The industry itself, right? You know, there's like absolutely like large players holding large amounts of deals, which sort of makes things a little bit more opaque. But you know, and again, that's how you guys can charge what you guys charge, and you know, because you're in the weeds doing all that work. Um, so another question I, I had, and I just like no conversation would be complete without it. Obviously, American dreams. We're we're seeing you know people start to leave their homes and and more mass go travel, do this and that. Where do you see you know things progressing over the next you know several months as far as recovery when it comes to traffic and and sales and all sorts of good stuff? Now that the ski slopes back in action, you know summertime skiing right. in, I, in New Jersey. So well, the the first of all, the people that with whom I've spoken who have been to American Dream have had a great experience and that it it continues to get better. Yeah, you mentioned the the. The ski slope had an issue, but it's back back on track. Uh, the uh, there are more and more um, medium to high end to ultra ultra luxury retailers still moving in to this day, finishing the the build out of their space. Uh, I think the biggest issues of, are the issues that we know about. I mean, I think the biggest issues are all the issues of delaying the venue, the full complement of the venue, which isn't even quite there yet as we speak, it's been the delay of the full complement of the venue as opposed to the fact that the venue isn't, um, isn't popular. 
I, I still view it as it hasn't had the full opportunity to prove um, to prove itself in, t- in terms of overall popularity. Now, when you when you boil it down to the muni bonds, actually, um, the muni bonds are broken out into two different types of bonds. The the pilot payment bonds yeah. are property tax backed bonds, and those are the bigger. Those are the the seven percent coupon bonds. Those are the bigger of the two tranches of debt, yeah. and and frankly, they're they're more secure because the the property tax based uh, bond is going to move more slowly, and um, and and currently it's it's based on the assessed valuation of the project, which is based primarily on the cost of construction. So the cost of construction, of course, that isn't going to change with foot traffic anytime soon. Yeah. Now. Um, the, the riskier bonds are the grant revenue bonds, which are effectively sales tax bonds. And there's a lot of confusion around those because there, were, there was a lot of sales taxes collected that is processing and wasn't turned over to the trustee in a timely manner. So we don't know exactly what our coverage was last time, but it was sort of implied that our coverage was near zero because they exhausted the debt service reserve fund. But there's a timing issue with that because the because the, of the county of, uh, that it that is calculating the, um, the amount of tax that they collected, which is a more complicated calculation than you might think because different um, venues pay a different level of tax in yeah. New Jersey. So, uh, so once they get all, that all calculated, it's, I'm not suggesting that it's going to be the full amount of the interest that was due, but it's going to be a, a good chunk of it is going to be put back into the debt service reserve fund in preparation for the next coupon payment. So there's some timing issues with the pilots uh, and there's still build out going on. There's still reopening going on. I mean, a full, a full reopening of the economy uh, with full post COVID with, with the full complement of the venues that are moving in, which is still above 85% or so of the available retail slots. Um, that that will then be able to um, kind of show what the project can do in, in okay. our view. Nice. I mean, are those timing issues going to, is that something that like, investors should be cognizant of going forward? Is that something that's always going to exist or is this sort of a one-time mismatch of, of flows? Um, that's, I, I hope that it's the latter. Uh, I think okay. that there were some, uh, we're, we're actually, you know, trying to work on that a little bit because we yeah. don't think, they're, well, they're, they're actually two different timing issues. One, one is the timing issue of simply ramp up and post getting to post-COVID ramp up of the actual operation of the, of the stores within the, within the venue, within the facility. Yeah. There's that timing issue, which we all know was delayed by COVID. But then there's the timing issue of simply more mechanical type, which is, which is the first time that they collected a meaningful amount of sales taxes. And then it uh, seems to have been, you know, delayed at the at the county level, and, and okay. hopefully that will go that that should go more smoothly. So, so there are at least two types of timing issues that I'm alluding to, and I'm okay. uh, hopeful that they'll both go more smoothly next time. All right, thank you for that answer. Um, last question for you because I know we're running up on time. Um, I'm very fearful that I will be labeled the doom and gloom person of the podcast, but I will end on a question which I like to end interviews on, which is just, you know, what keeps you up at night in, in the market at this point? Well, the, uh, I, I mean, the, wor- the worst environment that for many, of, many financial asset classes, including munis and muni high yield that people are starting to talk about is the stagflation term. Um, the, uh, you know, the Fed raises rates, but because of oil prices or because of supply chain issues, inflation isn't coming down the way they had hoped, but they've raised rates enough to, to really harm the economy. And so you get kind of the worst of both worlds. You get the, uh, you get the high inflation with a low growth rate or a recessionary type of feeling. I mean, that's not our, that's not our base case. That's not our most, most likely scenario, but that's, um, but that's something that everybody's worried about. Um, the, uh, uh, I think the, the fun flow and kind of over, over reaction to, you know, some of the negative 
uh, total returns in the first quarter um, is uh, is something that I that I do think will will turn around through the course of uh, through the course of the year, perhaps as soon as the second quarter or third quarter of the year. Um, but uh, but liquidity management is always you know kind of part and parcel to um, to having a negative quarter like this. So um, those are those are a couple uh, those are a couple different you know worries that uh, that we have. And last question: Cubs or White Sox? <laughs> uh, I'm more of a I'm more of a Cubs fan. But, okay, uh, but we'll. All right. I hope they both have good seasons. All right, there we go. Um, I want to thank you, John Miller, everyone from Nuveen, Amanda Albright, Bloomberg News. Thank you very much. And make sure to join us next month uh, on our next episode of Masters of the Universe. Thanks, guys. Thank you.